Okay, looks like we're uh, about time we can get started. We're going to be wrapping up Mark chapter 4, allowing you to do a little work yourselves as we look at uh, the parable of the seed growing and the parable of the mustard seed. And then we'll turn to the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, see the way it functions in the order that Matthew has set forth. And we'll get a little confirmation in regard to uh, the reason Jesus speaks in parables. And then we'll get to look at uh, some parables exclusive to Matthew's text as well. That's the goal and the plan for tonight. And again, the point being that both Mark 4 and Matthew 13 are laying the foundation for how to read and understand the parables narrowly and how to read and understand the New Testament, really all the scriptures, but the New Testament more broadly, because we're looking specifically at the teaching of Jesus and the nature of what it means to be a disciple. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this time of our study. We know that all our efforts are futile unless blessed by you and by your Holy Spirit. We pray that in the parables of your Son, we may come to know him and his kingdom all the more, and to not only be hearers, but also doers of his word. In the name of the same Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. All right, so if you will, open up to Mark chapter 4, and we walked through the parable of the seed growing. This would be Mark 4, verse 26 through 29, and I gave a brief summary of the main theme and a couple other themes, so this will help us by way of review, but it'll also help us broaden out uh, to what you see the main points of this parable are, okay? And so this is different from the question of what does this mean to me, (laughs) which is a very postmodern and relativistic question, But this is rather, what does Jesus mean, and what things do you see? And you might see some things that are quite tangential to the main point. That's okay. That's part of the parables. Again, I've asserted to you that each of the parables really has one primary point of comparison or one primary purpose. And from there, we can find some secondary kinds of purposes and then some tangential sorts of uh, readings that we might have or reflections we might have on the theme. Again, based on other scriptures that use similar language or imagery or concepts. Does that make sense? Okay. So this will be working through the parables and working through them together. So I'm simply going to read through the parable starting at Mark chapter 4, verse 26, and then see what you can recollect from last week and or what uh, you see yourself. So at verse 26, and he, of course, Jesus said, the kingdom or reign of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. Uh, 
automate produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. All right. So in this section, we have, of course, seen the seed sown by the sower in the parable of the sower being the word. We've heard about why it is that Jesus preaches this way and how it is that we are to hear. Similarly, we've seen the lamp be a referent to God's word and lightening all things. And right after we've had, again, this discourse on hearing, so pretty safe to assume, wouldn't you think, that the seed, again, has to do with the word of God. Is that also your assumption, or do you see something different here? No, it's the same. It's the same. Yes, but I also like how he said, he knows not how, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. a seed, you can take seeds and keep them in storage, for a couple of years, take it out, throw it in the ground, put some water, and somehow the seed knows it's in the ground mm-hmm. and it grows. So it's almost like what he said, hey, how, how do we know you become saved? Only God knows. Great point. Great point. How does, how does the seed function that the, the mystery of the farmer sowing it? He knows not how it grows. Um, we know not how the word works right that and i would submit that that's really point number one and the foundational point of this sermon um that the word uh that is the seed and the earth together um produce automatically okay what would be the strength or strengths what would be the weakness or weaknesses of seeing jesus as the one sowing in this parable In the parable of the sower, it's quite obvious. In fact, Jesus interprets it as such that he's the one doing the sowing. Um, What, again, would be the strength or weakness of seeing him as the the farmer, the man scattering the seed on the ground here in this parable? Yes, sir. He wants um, his disciples to spread the seed rather than just himself. Okay, exactly so. Um, you're, you're maybe a step down the line further than I am. Um, if you, uh, but you're exactly right. So if the, maybe the, maybe the strength first of seeing him as the sower would be any weaknesses that you see? What is an evil cause all the seed to grow? Um, Okay, so so that would be true in the parable of the sower. Why doesn't he cause all to grow? And that's that's ultimately the mystery of why some and not others. The parable of the sower doesn't answer that question. It just says this is the way it's going to go. <laughs> but here in this parable, all the seed does grow, or at least it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, what soil it falls on here in this particular parable. Okay. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, the weakness of seeing this as Jesus. I mean, the strength of seeing it as Jesus is that we want to see Jesus at the center of every parable, parable, and we want to see him doing the doing, and that's because that's generally the case. 
weakness is exactly as Al articulated that Jesus specifically mentions here the ignorance of the earthly farmer as to how the seed grows. And of course, we know our Lord isn't ignorant to how the word grows. He knows. Rather, it's we who are ignorant of how it grows. And so there's the strength then of putting the preacher um, or the Christian preacher, maybe most specifically. So I think you can look at this two different ways. You could look at this office of the holy ministry, or you could look at this broader church scattering the word. I don't think we have to put that fine of a point on it. It would be true in either case, wouldn't it? That whoever is sowing the word knows not how it grows. So this is, this is in a sense, then, the mystery of how the gospel goes forth. You can sow, and as we've seen, it can fall on all manner of soil. You can sow, and where it grows, you don't know how it grows. It does it of its own. Make sense? Okay. And then a secondary thing we can see here, because Jesus takes uh, pains to put it this way, if you look at verse 28, the earth produces automate by itself. And then he's at great pains to show a graduation. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, so if you're counting, there's four stages. Grammatically, you see really three. Um, but of course, a fourth stage is just when it's brought to its fullness. Um, yeah, in fact, paradoi ha karpos, it yields up its fruit. That's the grain is ripe. It yields up its fruit. Okay, so what do we see there? Why would Jesus put this in stages, do you think? Or at least emphasize, if not stages, at least emphasize a, a gradual growth. Just that was what you were talking about on the other verse. Does he hear the word, then you accept it, and then you bear fruit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that so you're you're looking back at verse 20. Yes. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Verse 20, those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Okay, so there's hearing, accepting, bearing fruit. Now, while this might have its first reference to conversion or to the holistic picture of the Christian, it might also have a secondary reference in every single time we hear the word of God. Every single time the seed is cast, we have opportunity to hear it or not, as the case may be, accept it or not, as the case may be. And in accepting it, it bears fruit within us. Okay, a similar verse to look at in context would be verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 24, where Jesus says to them, pay attention to what you here, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. So there is a progression and a growth. And um, that, of course, the first part of verse 25, for to the one who has, more will be given. So as the then to try to tie all these themes together into what we see in verse 28 and the first part of verse 29, 
There's a development of the word within the one who hears. So the word first produces as the blade, then the year, then the full grain, then it yields up its fruit. So we might see here, and we don't have to make too strong of a dogmatic point, but I think we might see here that the expectation our Lord has is not just that the word makes disciples, but that the word um, gives growth to the disciples. So that you might look at a disciple and say, there's the blade, okay, and there's a disciple that has the ear, there's a disciple that has the grain in the ear, and then the grain is ripe. All right, how else might we do this? We can look at the individual disciple. We could also broaden out and be looking at the whole field. And that almost seems more natural to the parable, doesn't it? To be looking out at the whole field and to be seeing all the progress at once. Now we get a picture of the church, right? And we get a picture of the church developing onto a kind of eschatological harvest. The whole church is blossoming and growing forth. Um, We might even be inclined to see this stage of Jesus' ministry as the stage when just the blades are coming up out of the earth, right? And the church will, throughout the centuries, progress into the full ripeness. Um, You can also visualize this if you realize that no Christian ever really dies, right? So the church is a deathless church. It's constantly and continually growing. It's constantly and continually becoming more fruitful. Um, The works of those who have departed are by no means, have by no means ceased, They continue on. I think just as we talked about the butterfly effect of you taking a stand, no matter how small it is for the faith and how that can bear fruit for generations to come. No one's works ever really cease. They echo on for good or ill until the close of the age. The church has such her works echo on. The fruitfulness echoes on and uh, continues to grow up until the full ripeness of the entire church and her whole fruitfulness. Make sense? So then then we can see that, um, and here, here again, we come then to a final kind of point because you have this eschatological theme of when the grain is ripe, verse 29, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, what's the weakness of seeing this as a human preacher or as a as a disciple, as an apostle in a proper sense? Maybe somebody who holds the office of the ministry or maybe even just a Christian. What's the weakness here? We don't know what a grain is, right? Sure. We're not the ones in charge of doing the harvesting. Who's the one in charge of doing the harvesting? John. The Lord. Yeah. God, the Lord. And and sometimes specifically his angels. Okay. So interesting. In Jesus' parable, in the one place we have kind of a weakness with it being the Lord. He knows how the seed grows. In another place, we have it with a strength being the Lord. And then we have a symmetrical weakness with it being a human creature. On the one hand, it seems to fit better this data that we don't know how it grows, but it seems to fit the data worse when we see that. We're not in charge of any harvest. Okay. 
What do you think? What do you think the Lord's genius would be in having a both and there? How would you articulate that? You, you don't assume. First of all, you don't assume responsibility, so you don't okay. get that. So you don't get stressed out by saying. And number two, mm-hmm. he determines when um, when your church is done. Meaning, hey, you have members that are passing away all the time, and he's the one determining. Hey, those. They're ready for the harvest. They're right. There are others that are still here. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, both great points. Both great points. And I think, I think similar to Scott, you're maybe just one step further down the line than I am, but your points are exactly right and exactly where we want to head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I would submit to you that probably the genius of this is the Lord has in mind that his disciples, maybe in the proper sense at this point, would in fact not exactly be precisely clear if he's talking about himself or them. Because in fact, as Jesus will say clearly elsewhere, he who hears you hears me. So we have a very ingenious way of showing a kind of both and aspect to the preaching and the sowing of the word. At one time, it's a very human apostle type action and another time it's very much the lord's action these two in fact are combined he who hears you hears me did i see a hand over here yeah, yeah please what's the greek word for let's see chapter four verse nine he who has ears to hear what's the greek word that's for ear uh, because the coincidences oh yeah 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 i looked at that they're two different words though yeah, yeah they're entirely different words so um do you have it handy, Vicar? Yeah, 4-9 is Ota. Ota, ear. Oh, 4-9 is, uh, wait. Did you say 4-9? Yeah, ear, ears, Ota. Oh, I see. And then in four, and then you're looking at ear here in um, verse 28. Yeah. That's just like a modern... Uh, the fruit and the... I think it's... Yeah, stakun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so two different words. They, yeah, they only have coincidence in um, English. Okay, yeah, so um, good, good. Anyone want to add anything else on this? Yeah, please. This progression I find is interesting. I, I, I might jump to the Romans 5 where there's a progression there also. Paul's writing, talking about trials, how how they incrementally go, uh, you know, in fact, let me uh, mm-hmm. turn to it. Let's rejoice uh, in our trials uh, and our sufferings, knowing that they produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And, and you know, so it's it's uh, so it's it's not a light switch that turns on where we're harvested instantly. It's this progression, I think, and mm-hmm. public research that we find it all throughout Scripture, or understanding it. And, it's an encouragement to me not to be discouraged in our growth process because we could have a stutter step every once in a while, sideways. Or, Absolutely. Absolutely. As we're mature. The LWML is uh, here. Shut the door. Yeah. Okay. It's just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. That's all we need. That's good. Thank you.
Okay, so Barry uh, brings up a great point from Paul, um, and Paul does this several different times, um, talking about the development of a Christian uh, through various stages that suffering produces, um, endurance and endurance character and character hope. I may not have those exactly right. Paul himself doesn't always have them exactly in the same order. Uh, yeah. So the, you know, the point is certainly not that you would say to yourself, well, I, I think I'm at the second stage. The blades come out and now the ear. I mean, that, that's not the point. We're not to find ourselves or maybe other people necessarily at this stage. Although I think the temptation is there. And it may even, in fact, be helpful, um, again, from a, the standpoint of the office of the holy ministry to realize that not every disciple is going to be the same. You shouldn't have the same expectation of them all. So that would be a pastoral kind of meditation on this um, that could be profitable. And I think, Barry, you're exactly right, though, that we see a corporate growth, we see an individual growth, and we see that that growth is on account of the seed or the word, so it fits our monergistic, God alone working theology very well. And certainly ties in, as Chris pointed out, to what we saw with the good soil in verse 20 and to what Jesus said, states very plainly in 24 and 25, that the measure you use, it will be measured back to you and still more will be added unto you. So we see that it is the word that does it all. And yet there's an active participation in listening to that word. And there's a development and growth on the part of the disciple and on a part of the church corporately. All right. Anyone want to add anything else? There is that in this process, the, the, the farmer sleeps and then he uh, rises and then he goes to bed or whatever. But they don't talk about him going out and cultivating the fields. They don't talk about fertilizing the fields. They don't talk about irrigating the fields. Mm-hmm. Or doing all the things that, you know, I did. Uh, Roger can tell us about that farmers have to do. Mm-hmm. But, it's, I mean, I guess it, it's really not, not, that, not an issue there. Or would that sort of confuse the issue? Mm. I don't think so. I think you bring up a good point. Only his sleeping and rising is brought up. Almost certainly he's doing other stuff. But why Why only this? To show probably that and further this theme that it's the word doing the work, the seed doing the work. So even if, so Jesus doesn't mention these specific parts, even though they're true, because his point is rather that the farmer knows not how. Even if Jesus added in those parts, the farmer would still know not how, and he would still know not why. Hey, I tried really hard this season and it didn't happen but again just to make it cleaner and and more emphatic i think our lord has just chosen to emphasize his sleeping and his rising and farmer is jesus well that we that's kind of what we went through there's there's i think there's reason to see both there and i think that that's probably what our lord is doing mm-hmm. yeah. is harvest faith or is it the last judgment or what? Yeah, the theme of harvest, as we're going to see when we look at any number of his parables uh, and also sermons, is almost always final judgment. 
Now, if we're going to apply it to the individual, we can apply it to a particular judgment. That was kind of Chris's point, is that the Lord knows when a certain individual is, quote unquote, ripe and takes him home. And sometimes, you know, that we don't see it that way. We would see that this person maybe died too young or their time was cut short. That's not how God sees it. God sees a full ripeness there. And so, yeah, we might look at that individually in that regard. Corporately, so harvest is, um, as we're going to see, is is very frequently used by Jesus for the eschaton, the end of the, the end of the age. Okay, Gordon, yes, please. Um, what is your take on the fact that this man, farmer, whatever, um, scatters his seed basically, as far as we know, on good soil, whereas the other idiot was throwing it on the rocks and in the weeds. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's and sometimes that's uh that that idiocy if you will in the true root of the word hidu to be of one's own that's really what an idiot is is uh is um a, an apt description in fact of our lord because we would not do that very thing that he does. He is so reckless. I think that that's um one of the lines out of the the hymn we have on this text in the Lutheran service book, he scatters his reckless love. Okay. And so, yeah, there is a certain reckless grace that's in view there. Why? Because in the parable of the sower, why is it that some soil doesn't produce a crop or produces a crop and then it goes and then it dies or produces a crop, but then the crop becomes fruitless? rather than fruitful. Why? And the point in the parable of the sower is not because of the sower, (laughs) not because of Jesus. Jesus very clearly desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth such that he pays the cost for that seed that he's going to scatter everywhere indiscriminately. So we could see then, and and it is an inference, but infer there a universal atonement by which he buys the word of the gospel and scatters that word absolutely universally everywhere. So the point of the point of the parable of the sower is the fault is to be found in the soil and in these factors that accompany the soil, the hard path accompanied by the birds. The rocky soil accompanied by the persecution of the sun, uh, the soil uh, with the weeds. Um, first of all, it's home to weeds, and then the weeds, in fact, choke it out before it can become fruitful. So, so it's a fault with the soil, and then some sort of secondary principle that comes along. Now, none of that's in view here. What's and and none of those questions are are parallel, even though the imagery might be somewhat parallel. What's in view here is that the kingdom of heaven, the the reign of God come in Christ Jesus, is going to happen automate, automatically. Just as the seed combined with the earth has the power to automatically grow, and the farmer literally just sits back and falls asleep and wakes up and falls asleep and wakes up and sees it grow, so also the preaching of the word. Okay, the word is going to automate grow on its own abundantly. So that's what's in view here. So even though we might look at some superficial similarities, uh, 
and maybe even some semantic overlap or thematic overlap, we're going to see two very different teachings emerge in these two parables or two different emphases in regard to how the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven works. Does that help clarify some? So simply not, yeah, simply not in view is where he's sowing. Um, What's in view here is the nature of the cause of the growth and what that growth looks like. Okay, so I heard the first part are comparing our, our souls to the soil. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking more in terms of the parable of the sower or more in terms of the parable of the seed growing? Well, or maybe it doesn't matter. Yes. But then sometimes it goes into rocky soil, bad soil. Could that soil be like our soil? Yeah, to some extent, we just don't we don't want to go too far with that. Um, and we don't want to infer things from any parable that clear statements of Scripture elsewhere refute. OK, does that make sense? So the, so we wouldn't want to infer, for example, that um, there are certain souls that for whatever reason are worthy and certain souls that for whatever reason are not worthy. And it's up to you to make yourself worthy or not worthy, that would be a kind of Pelagian error. Or the flip side of that would be God makes certain souls worthy and certain souls unworthy, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that would be a kind of double predestination, the kind, the likes of which we see in Calvin, which would likewise be refuted by uh, many uh, scriptures. So as long as, again, we want to read the parables within the confines. So I, I think that there's in once, as long as we're reading them within those kind of doctrinal uh, confines, we're going to be in safe ground. So clearly, clearly, if you look at the parable of the sower, look at verse 20 again. It's true for all of them, uh, all of the verses, all the different kinds of soil. But look at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. Very clearly, he's talking about people. There are people who hear and receive it unto fruitfulness. There are people that do not hear, and the devil snatches it away. That would be the path. And there are people who hear, and then it takes root in them for a time. One it lose it because of persecution. The other lose it because of the cares of this world. Really, other stuff is better. It might be a fair. So again, I think that these these verses, um, I, I mean, both of these together uh, really make a lot of sense from a pastoral perspective. And of course, when you're talking about the 12 disciples at this point, they're both the church and the office of the holy ministry. And they really make sense in that regard. I think they make a specific kind of sense that as you're sowing the seed, um, you're going to encounter these different kinds of soils. That's it's not it's not your fault. <laughs> there's a mystery here, and there's these different kinds of people that are going to be hit by it. Now, from a disciple standpoint, from a receiver standpoint, very clearly you want to be the good soil. Very clearly you want to take care how you hear. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you and still more. So there's clearly an admonition here from our Lord in regard to uh, be, to us as disciples, how it is that we hear and receive. And it's true for it's true for all the church. Um, so I think you can see kind of both of those themes here. You know, you can see the theme of um, the word doing the work, and that and that has a wonderful view from the pastoral office, but it also has a wonderful view from the disciple office that as as receivers we realize that it's God who is going to bring to completion this good work that he's begun in us. That would be the reflection from a disciple. The reflection from the preaching office would be um, that it's the word that does the work. It's the word that does the doing. Luther's got this great quote. I can't remember it exactly, so I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, me me and Melanchthon sat around and drank Wittenberg beer while the word did the Reformation. Whenever I hear this of the, you know, the guy who goes out and sows and then just sleeps and wakes up. I think of Luther drinking his Wittenberg beer and the word working the whole Reformation. So that might be a, a way to understand it from the preaching office or the office of the Holy Ministry. I guess another aspect of the parable is uh, that it's dealing with the kingdom of God. I guess a very abridged uh, version of the parable would be there's a guy who plants some seeds that grows and then there's the harvest, right? So maybe it's uh, also pointing us to the fact that that's what the kingdom of God is about, is producing that harvest or gathering the harvest. Yeah. And maybe the mechanics of how that all happens is is part of it. But maybe mm-hmm. that's not necessarily uh, the whole point of the parable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so even at this maybe very early stage in Jesus' teaching and preaching, it's just that simple. It's providing a framework that we all take for granted, um, but maybe the initial hearers wouldn't have. And that's that Jesus has come to sow a fruitful field and to reap that harvest into his eternal barns. Right. And we're going to, we're going to see that come up, um, in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we'll see the the parable of the tares with exactly this theme. So great point. Great point. Okay. Um, anything else on this parable? We want to move to the next. Say something real quick. Please. It's the third week. This is kind of ran through my head. Mm-hmm. So the, that verse 20, when they say accept it, the first week I we read that, I'm thinking like, well, does that kind of support you have to accept Jesus from your heart? <laughs> but then I, I kind of went through it in my mind a couple of times. I'm like, well, that's they're actually talking about barren fruit, which comes after um, having faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the paradeconte word is just uh, decomai, receive, um, so that deco root is reception. And what are you going to, I mean, the path does not receive it. It bounces right off and the bird snatches it away. Arguably the other soils all receive it. Um, they just don't bear fruit. Maybe they just, it's a passive reception. It's not like they. Oh yeah. 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 They, they take an action. Yeah, I mean, again, if you if you want to try to assert, like, let's try to assert that someone like Pelagius or someone like Ar- Arminius was right, that it takes an active decision of the will and all matters upon, you know, all is determined upon the individual's freedom to make a decision for Jesus. You can't prove that from a parable. <laughs> so you've got to you've got to have that. You can't prove anything 
hardcore doctrinally from a parable like that. It just doesn't work. You've got to have an actual text that states that very clearly. In fact, we have texts that state that to the opposite. How I long to, to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Um, you did not choose me. I chose you, and so on. The Book of Concord, Article 2 on free will of the of the Formula of Concord, Article 2 on free will, has about a page and a half of nothing but biblical references um, that refute what we would call today decision theology. So you can go there and get... It blew me away because when I was in college and really kind of coming back to the faith in a serious way... I had just absorbed the free will theology without even knowing it and hit that article and was really put back on my keister <laughs> because it's like, all right, there's something majorly wrong with my theology. I'm not going to be able to change one of these passage, passages, let alone a page and a half of them. It's just overwhelming, overwhelming. Okay. So yeah, we don't, you know, and that's what I mean is um, our Lord's not ever going to use a parable as some sort of seat of doctrine to which we all have to, you know, say, okay, this is exactly what he means and exactly how we should take it. We're always reading the scriptures in light of the scriptures and the clear passages in light of the obscure. And we already know that the parables have an obscure kind of character and nature to them. We're going to see this more explicitly in Matthew's gospel, but we have already seen it um, here in Mark at uh, verse 11. And he said to them, to you, he's talking to the disciples narrowly, to you has been given the mysterion, the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, a Christian mystery, this later in Latin becomes the word sacramentum, from which we get sacrament. We don't mean it narrowly here, like the two or three sacraments. But mysterion is, is precisely this theologically. It's You can grasp exactly what you've been given to grasp, exactly what the word says. You can never, it's basically inexhaustible. You can never stop studying it, never stop learning it. That's, in, in effect, what a mysterion is. Okay? A mystery is a profound truth that has been given to you to grasp, and that truth continues to unfold and unfold and unfold forever. So the Lord's Supper is a perfect example, easy to grasp, about the nature of a mysterion. All right? It's a very difficult thing in the first place. The chief mystery Simply, this is my body, this is my blood, given for you for your forgiveness. That's a secret that the world will not receive, and that a good number of Christians in our own day and age will not receive. Right? So there's a profound kind of core mystery. Once you grasp that, there's no limit put on your understanding of the Lord's Supper. It grows and grows and grows and will never cease from, I mean, you can never, there's nobody who goes, well, that's it. I know all there is to know about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Any more than there's anyone who says, well, that's it. I've mastered the Trinity. Don't have anything more to think about or learn there. Uh, what's up next, God? <laughs> it never happens. So the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, the operation of the Holy Spirit, 
uh, the sacraments proper, baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper. Every identifiable article of the faith counts as a mysterion, okay? And that's why St. Paul says, let a man reckon us as stewards of the mysteria, the mysterion of God, the mysteries or sacraments of God. So here then, each parable, I would argue, represents a kind of, or is a kind of mysterion and represents a kind of nexus of various doctrines that are made clearer elsewhere in the scriptures. But that's why the parables are so fun. It's why you can usually pinpoint sort of one specific point that Jesus is very clearly getting across. And then from there on out, it's virtually inexhaustible. You can look at it from all kinds of different angles and come to richer understandings of things that are made perfectly crystal clear in other scriptures. But there's a sort of delight in seeing it unfold in a kind of image and teaching of a parable. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So um, did, did we kind of uh, wrap up that parable? I don't want to push us on unduly, but... I, I just find striking okay. just talking about uh, the sower and, and just the, the mystery of how things grow. I find it almost encouraging that something as little as a, as a mustard seed kind of translating into like one of our small actions or words, something we do that we think is insignificant, possibly could have a major impact and grow into something. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, when we're maybe trying to make an impact and we think like we're just hitting the wall or throwing it on on the, on the, uh, the, the, the concrete, so to speak, rocky ground, it's not going to come to fruition. Again, not for us to be figuring out like, why isn't it working? Just keep trying, keep selling and keep trying, yeah. but don't, uh, don't get wrapped up in the mechanics of how or why. Just, yeah. it, it will or it won't. And that's like, worry about it. That's, that's a great, it, it's a great reflection. It's a great reflection. It's where that language is kind of coming to our parlance, uh, common parlance as Christians. You know, what do you, what are you trying to do? Just trying to sow a seed, you know, <laughs> it's like, I don't expect it to be immediately fruitful. Um, you know, maybe you're reaching out to someone in your family who's lapsed from the faith or who's distanced themselves from God or something. And you just say, I'm just sowing a seed. I don't expect it to have immediate effect. I'm hoping that it has effect sometime down the road. Yeah. So that's a fantastic reflection and exactly the kind we should have. Please. Well, one thing on verse 27, he knows not how. Uh, as a farmer, we intently study botany <laughs> and can observe exactly what's going on with that seed sure. and how to even genetically modify it to make it more resistant to disease, et cetera. Uh, but we can't create the germ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and just as uh, sitting here studying, we're learning more and more and more, mm-hmm. and it actually makes us appreciate mm-hmm. The creator and what he's done. And it's, it's kind of like the mad scientist who thinks <laughs> we can make man out of dirt. And <laughs> right. God says, create your own dirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a great point. And in that sense, you can see uh, mystery interpenetrate just about everything, can't you? Because where there's life, you can you can describe that in terms of mechanism, but you can't really describe why it's there nor could you replicate that. You can say, well, I know it's living because X, Y, and Z, and this is how that works, and that's how the other works, but you're only describing the mechanism, not the thing itself. And I I may be a little out of my depth on this particular point, but I would suspect it's the same with growth. 
She might be able to describe the mechanisms of growth and the cause and effect of growth, but as to what precisely sets that in motion, mystery. And you can come into similar mysteries with um, your own thoughts. (laughs) Where do they come from? Um, What's the source of them? What's the nature of them, etc. So we can describe all kinds of mechanisms, but not the thing itself at its essence. So the world is penetrated and permeated with mystery. And that's the joy, you know, that's, that's part of what unfortunately a scientific age can, I mean, it can greatly help because it can unfold and unravel mystery and, and, you know, mechanism and, and make it all the more intriguing. So science is a Christian's friend in that regard, but the scientism quote unquote can lead man in a false direction as if all there is is the mechanism and there is no mystery, which is not science used rightly. It's science used in a way that blinds man to the nature of reality, which is that there are these things that are mysterious where science itself establishes a limit and a bound and says, I can't know what this is. So again, science used correctly a beautiful, brilliant light, just like reason used correctly, a beautiful, brilliant light. Science used pervertedly, perversely, um, is the same as reason used perversely. It ends up blinding and hiding. So uh, just to be aware of that in our own age, a lot of the mystery and the magic of the world has been removed from our eyes. Um, Pastor Odie. Yeah, please. Yeah, there's a saying that says any man can count the number of apples in a uh, number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so true. So true. Okay, very good. Very good. So um, if we uh, let's move on to the parable of the mustard seed, and then we'll be able to wrap up Mark. All right. Verse 30 indicates these three words, and he said that we're on to a different parable. With what can we compare the kingdom or reign of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Now, this may just be a kind of rhetorical move by which our Lord is inviting in the audience. But by virtue of what's preceded and this kind of blurring between him and the preacher being the, I think he's inviting preachers in specific, but the church in general also, I mean, all of us together, into this way of thinking. So I, th- I take this, and I- I'm not going to make it, you know, dogmatic or draw a really hard line in the sand, but I take this to be our Lord inviting us into the delight of the parabolic way of thinking. With what can we compare the kingdom or reign of God or what parable shall we use for it? Now he submits one. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. All right. Again, we see this as a kind of hyperbole or general statement that Jesus is saying. Obviously he knows that, you know, as he knew in verse 28, that the earth, you know, doesn't produce by itself. The seed is produced within the earth. 
Um, so too, I don't think we need to accuse him of not being aware that there are in fact smaller seeds. After all, he made them. But his point here is emphatic. It's precisely the smallness of the seed that's in view, which is why he says the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And believe it or not, that actually is a good, a fairly good translation and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. All right. Um, I'll simply point out some of the fun that exists in the grammar and in the language at the um, at this last saying. So that the birds of the heaven. Now, their air is a fine translation, um, but it does say the birds of the heaven can make nests. Now, that could easily be translated as perch because the word is kata skenun. Now, uh, John 1.4 says the word became flesh and eskenosan, tabernacled among us. Did you hear the skein? You hear the same thing, kata skenun, make nest perch tabernacle in its skian shade all right so that's kind of uh again we're distant from the main point the main point being what do you surmise okay so like the other parables thus far you've got a seed what's what's unique about this seed in this case taking care of everything giving a home for the birds, okay, put their nest and everything. Does the seed begin significant or insignificant? Very small. Very small, insignificant, the smallest. And it's cast out onto the earth like it's not going to do anything. But what it does is, even though it's the smallest, it does the greatest because it's larger than all the other plants, all the garden plants, and puts out large branches. So that which is smallest becomes largest that seems to be the principle and point our lord is exploiting so what do you make of the uh, seed, the seed in this context it's more powerful than the other soil because the other soil it says the weeds covered it up this one it can't stop it the weeds can't stop it it's going to grow like a plant up. okay so in this case the seed we have uh I, again would you say the word of god mm-hmm. i'd say the word of god And the word of God appears to be quite insignificant. Um, First century Gentiles certainly thought so. And many people after all centuries have this, have, have thought in their minds, the church isn't going to grow. This, this, this so-called word isn't going to spread. It isn't going to be believable. We'll snuff out the church. It's going to be the end, but it in fact doesn't happen, does it? And in fact, if you looked at, all the things that have been built upon the earth, the church is in fact going to be the largest of all of them. Because all other kingdoms, all other everything, they all have their day in the sun and then they disappear. There's one kingdom that in the end will show to 
abide and be larger than all the others. And that's the kingdom sown by the little, tiny, insignificant word. So I think there, again, would be the main point of this, because we've heard Jesus in clear language talk about this as preaching, so word and how you hear it. And now we're on our uh, one, two, three, third specific parable, explicitly about the seed, explicitly about the word. So this one is, again, though the word would seem insignificant, it has great significance over time. All right, what else do you what else do you see? What else do you make of it? All right, then I'll jump in and try to put a little more meat on what I was pointing to at the end, the kind of delightful language. The branches are so large so that the birds of the air, now previously we saw the birds as being satanic. Do you think we should see them as satanic here? No. We should consider it, and then we should dismiss it, because it doesn't make any sense. No, we can see that Jesus uses different uh, images in different ways. No problem. No problem. So the birds specifically are the birds of the heaven. Now, that's kind of a fun play on words. Who would the birds of the heaven be? (laughs) Christians, I would think. Why not? Why not? The Christians can perch or tabernacle in its shade. So this giant plant then, so the, the word goes forth, insignificant, produces this giant plant, the church, and the birds of the heaven, us, can tabernacle within it. Safe. Exactly. Bingo. And that's the other thing we don't get because we, you know, have shelters all around us and air conditioning and everything else. You need shade in order to survive. And so this is life-giving, life-sustaining shade given to us by the church. Yoda comes to mind. Remember he had that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's got the plant. Yeah. That he, was all miffed. he was all miffed and God gave him the plant and then God took the plant away and he got all miffed that the plant went away. Right? <laughs> okay, so now this is an interesting thing. Um, and and a theme that I don't think I've really brought out heretofore because it is, a de- I would say it's definitely a secondary reflection. But here you have the seed, okay, as in the other parables regarding the seed, the seed goes into the earth. When the seed goes into the earth, do we see the seed as such again? No. It goes into the earth, and in a sense, the seed there dies, and what comes forth is something different. All right? Now, Paul talks this way explicitly um, as does our Lord, what what might we see the seed as a, apart from the word or slightly different than the word? The person? Christ. Yeah. Okay. It, one can have a secondary reflection on the seed as Christ himself being buried into the earth, his death, and then his resurrection as something 
glorious and, uh, and other. This, by the way, ties in very nicely with the fact that when Jesus is risen, his disciples don't recognize him unless he wants to be recognized. He's become something altogether different and altogether glorious, even though he's very much still the same. Touch my hands and my side and see that as I. So in the same way that a seed goes into the earth and becomes a plant, it's the same thing, is it not? Yes. And yet it's gone through a very different transition. And what was one time a seed is now a gigantic plant. And so we ought to, uh, you know, take opportunity to ponder, at least in a secondary way, the nature of the seed, the word being buried and producing through his own resurrection, his own body, the church. In this case, the, the largest of the garden plants with its branches stretched out with the birds of the heavens making nest in its shade. Okay, so again, albeit I think a secondary reflection, it, what other uh, what other things do you see, if anything, here? The part about the shade, mm-hmm. you think of like, I'm not sure where it is, maybe Moses, the full brilliance of God. It's, it's throughout the Bible, isn't it? This idea of the full brilliance of God. We would need shade, otherwise, we might just be blinded. So, the guidance of pastors in the church and helping to kind of downstep it or make it more manageable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the shade brings to mind the sun, and then the sun could be playfully, faithfully, in light of clearer scriptures. We could play with the sun as different motifs. We could. What about the holiness of God? And we're sinners being spared from that by the outstretched branches of the Savior, his body being the church. What else might we see the Son as? Well, maybe not God in his righteousness and we as sinners, but we might see it as persecution or affliction or the tribulations of this world. That's the way the Son was viewed the last time we saw it, I think, in verse 6, where the Son is scorching that seed which sprouts up but has no root. And we see that uh, very clearly specified as to what that is. Um, In verse 17, it looks like they endure for a little while, then when tribulation or persecution arises, that's the sun in the parable of the sower, immediately they fall away. So if we took the sun to be tribulation or suffering persecution on account of the word, then we're protected and sheltered by that, shaded by that by this great big mustard plant that rises. All right. So that kind of that kind of allows us to think. And I, by the way, I, I mean, I think that this exercise, what we're doing is precisely the gift given in these um, parables. And to bring it full circle, I, I do believe that that's the intention. I don't think it's mere rhetoric with what our Lord says here. Um, at the very beginning, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? I think he's inviting us into this way of thinking and this way of playing with the parable that he gives. And there's right ways to think about it and wrong ways to think about it. And there's right as long as we don't cross the boundary into wrong and (laughs) wrong. But if we think about it in this one unique way, right enough. 
you know, so that's the fun. All right, let me, um, I see that we're at the close. So let me just hit verse 33 and 34 with you, and we'll have wrapped up this introductory section in Mark's gospel. We'll go to the parallel section. We're, we're going to see ways in which it's same but different in Matthew next week then. Verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. So again, uh, Mark now as the narrator or editor, as it were, um, inviting us to contemplate that this becomes a way that Jesus speaks and there's a certain aptitude or lack thereof in the disciples for hearing it as they were able to hear it. Verse 34, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, that harkens back to verse 12 and the whole reason that he preaches, Allah, Isaiah 6, 9, um, that they may indeed see but not perceive and hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so this is the mystery of the of the crowds rejecting his plain words. And so him his continued preaching in parables that they who have rejected and have little and Will even what they have be removed as they have no clue what he's talking about? While those disciples who have, who have believed his plain and simple word, who he is and what he's come to do, will continue to grow and have all the more. Okay. And so again, that verse 12 ties in very much with that promise of verse 25 to the one who has more will be given from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then that's simply reinforced here at the end, that those who have rejected Christ hear the parables, they don't have anything, what they have is taken away, but privately to his own disciples, he continues to explain everything that they may grasp it. It's interesting to think that uh, what wakes up the sea? Water. Yes, right. Absolutely. Absolutely right. (laughs) So what do you connect that to? (laughs) <laughs> baptism wow, you- absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah baptism is always hiding out in these too because uh you have to have water you have to have water um and then and then in some of these two uh the sun definitely appears less hostile you have to have light you have to have light and you have to have water and um that combination um and more explicit references than that but that combination is again baptism and enlightenment the sun and the water together frequently in view. Okay, so as I mentioned, we'll take a look at the parallel parts of Matthew, and you're going to see some different emphases that Matthew has, and we're going to see uh, um, how he does the same parables, but then adds parables, and it'll be a real fun exercise, I think, for us to see how that function, how this theology functions in his gospel. We'll hit that next week. Let's uh, close up with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.